Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that speaks to us about your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you may help us to understand more about him as we look into it together. Lord, we thank you for every word contained in your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look at what it says so many years ago in the prophet Isaiah's words about the son that would be given, Lord, we pray that this may help us to honour that son today as we learn further about him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever hurt yourself whilst walking in the darkness? Whilst walking in the dark. I have done this. I have one memorable occasion where uh, soon after uh, we had a son and he was crying in the night, Joshua was crying one night, and I got up in a rush uh, to go and see him and walked quickly down the stairs in our house and tripped as they sort of do a bit of a spiral. They start to turn at one point, and I'd forgotten that the stairs widen, and in the dark, of course, I did not see that, and I tripped, and I'm pretty sure I broke my little toe. Um, And it was very painful uh, for quite some time, but of course it improved. But it could have been a lot worse. Walking in the dark can be quite damaging. I could have tripped right down the stairs and broken a lot more than my little toe. Uh, Walking in the darkness can be a painful experience. It's not something we should try to do. It is quite dangerous. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the subject of walking in darkness and being liberated from that darkness. And that's given to us in this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, which is found on page 683 of the Black Church Bibles. I encourage you, if you've got a Bible in front of you, open it up to Isaiah chapter 9, that passage that we just had read for us, page 683, and we'll look at the subject of darkness and light. And we see in the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 9 that people, the Israelites, are in darkness. And that is given to us in a number of images that are there in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. We see that in verse 1, they are described, the Israelites, as being in gloom. Verse 1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Uh, Those in darkness are often distressed. There's another way that they're described in verse 1. It says, In the past he humbled, that's the Lord, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. These people are being described as in gloom. They've been humbled. They have have been in distress. And then verse 2 describes it in the way that I've already mentioned, that it's in darkness that they're in. Verse 2, it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, there's that other image of darkness there, shadow of death, a light has dawned. The people of Israel at this stage are in darkness. What does the darkness represent? Well, it's talking about these areas that have been hit very hard by Assyrian armies. Basically, the Israelite history is a, a long history, and at one point, some Assyrians came in and Uh, went to war against these Israelites and hurt them quite badly. They conquered much of Israel, and including these two lands that are mentioned in verse 1, Zebulun and Naphtali. These areas are in the north of Israel, and the Assyrians are further north than Israel. And, of course, the Assyrian army came in and got those lands first. There was a significant conquest that went on there, and Assyrians actually stayed in those areas. And so the Israelites that were there were under the control of these Assyrians. 
And so they were said to be in darkness here. They're in gloom. They've been humbled by God as they live there in darkness as the Assyrian army has conquered them. But Isaiah says they will not remain in this darkness. They will not remain there. In fact, they're going to see some light and be increasingly joyful. And that is given to us in verses 1, 2, and 3 as well. It says in verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee is that same region. By the way of the sea along the Jordan. And then it says in verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This light comes. And then what's the result of this light? Verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. This is this joy that is given there to the people and he's trying to convey how great the joy is and there's two ways that he tries to do it. One is by people rejoicing at harvest time. Now we aren't an agricultural community here so we don't really understand that image to the same extent as the people of Israel did at that time. But basically when you're having harvest time that means when you've got stacks of food coming in. Harvest time is the time when it is the most joyful part of the year. You have food in abundance because the harvest has come. Or the other way that people got joyful in those days was when they were dividing the plunder. We don't go around plundering other people uh, very often. There can be hostile takeovers in corporate worlds and things like that. And parts of the world do still, with armies, go around uh, plundering others. Uh, But this is when there is an abundance given to a nation, is when there's plunder there. If a a foreign power has been conquered, then there's that plunder that comes to the people. And that's the kind of joy that is coming to the Israelites here. They were in darkness, but now they are in great joy. The same kind of joy as if we were to have a harvest. The same kind of joy as if we were to conquer another nation. The question is, how can these people be joyful? What is going to happen to bring them out of darkness into light? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. How these people come from being in darkness to being in light. And that brings me to my first main point about how this happens. And that is that the yoke is broken. The yoke is broken. If you want to follow my main points, they're listed on the back of the church bulletin that you should have received as you came in. You can see my main points there. And the first is that the yoke is broken. And we see that told to us in verse 4. After speaking about people being in darkness, seeing a light, he then goes on to explain how this comes about. And you see it in verse 4 with the first word that is there translated for us as for. He's basically saying, for something has happened. What has happened that has brought these people into great joy? What has happened? Verse 4 says, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke. That burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Why are they in joy? Because something has happened. And that is that the yoke that burdens them has been shattered. The bar across their shoulders has been shattered. The rod of their oppressor has been shattered. And it's been shattered in a way that reminds the people 
of uh, previous conquests that happened in the land of Israel. What is that conquest? Well, it's mentioned there in verse 4. It says, For as in the days of Midian's defeat you have shattered the yoke and so forth. What is Midian's defeat? Well, most of us in the room, I don't think, have any sort of Jewish heritage, and so we may not know so much about Jewish history. But basically, back in the book of Judges, this foreign nation came and spread out and oppressed the Israelite people. And they were the Midianites. The Midianites came into the land of Israel and were a great source of suffering to the Israelite people. There was a yoke placed upon the Israelite people by these people of Midian. But they were actually conquered by an Israelite coming forward, led uh, by the Lord to conquer this nation. And it was a marvellous defeat that happened in Judges against the Midianites. This man was raised up called Gideon. Gideon came along and he was designated by God to conquer the Midianites. And the Midianites had come up for war, and you can read about this in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, maybe this afternoon, you'd like to do that. Look up Judges chapter 6. And there the Midianites come up, and it says that they're described in Israel as they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Think of that. So many people coming up that they're like locusts. We don't really experience locust plagues here in Australia, but when locusts come, they can just cover everything. And that is how the Midianites are described in Judges 6. There were so many of them that it was impossible to count them. So how is God going to bring about the deliverance of the Israelites from these Midianites who are so numerous? Well, he uses Gideon. And in Judges chapter 7, we hear about Gideon going along with an Israelite army to conquer these Midianites. And he actually has 32,000 men with him, Israelite warriors, to conquer the Midianites. And God says, that's actually too many. Dismiss some of them. And 10,000 Israelite soldiers walk away. Gideon has 22,000 against a number of impossible to count other foreign soldiers. 22,000 against an impossible number to count, an impossible to count number of people. But then God says, that's still too many. Drop it down to 300, 300 men. And he drops the number of soldiers down to 300. And then God brings about this marvelous deliverance against the Midianites. With 300 men, Gideon conquers the Midianite army. And so then that is being alluded to here in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 4. It says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. They're thinking back. Isaiah is saying what is going to come about is a marvellous deliverance to the Israelite people. One that is like that marvellous deliverance that happened with Gideon, where 300 men were able to conquer an army beyond count. That is what is going to happen. The people are in darkness, but they will have great joy because the yoke will be shattered, as in the day of Midian's defeat. So how does this come about? How can this happen, that this yoke is shattered in this way? Well, the text goes on to tell us that the yoke is broken by a son. And that is my second main point this morning. The yoke is broken by a son. And we see that in verse 6. 
Verse 6 opens with that little word for again, which is giving then, telling us that a reason is coming for the joy that the people will experience. What does it say in verse 6? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How is the yoke going to be shattered? Well, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There is going to be this son that is given that is going to shatter the yoke of the Assyrians against Israel, that's going to shatter that yoke of darkness that is upon the Israelite people. Now, this may sound incredible. How can one person come along and shatter that yoke? This is going to be a defeat that is going to even surpass the defeat that Gideon with his 300 men had upon the Midianite army. How is one person going to be able to do that? Well, we have a few hints in the passage as to what this person will be like. Firstly, we're told that the person will be human. They will be given to us, and that's told to us by the way that he is described in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This person is going to be a fully human person. But not just human... This person is actually divine. This person is going to be God himself living on earth. Where is that told to us in verse 6? Well, in verse 6 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is to be called Mighty God. Another way to translate that Hebrew word that's been translated here as mighty is by the word warrior. He is a warrior God. He is God himself with great power, with great might. And so he can then shatter that yoke that is on the Israelites, that is on God's people. And there's another hint that the God will do this through this son is given to us at the end of verse 7 as well. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then what does it say? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. How is that yoke going to be shattered? Well, it's going to be by the zeal of the Lord Almighty. It's going to be done by the Lord. It's going to be done by the Son who is God himself. And the word almighty there, we could actually translate as armies. The old translation, the King James translation, has hosts whenever this comes up. This way of describing God. The Lord of hosts, which is a reference to armies. Old word for armies. The Lord of hosts. This is who is going to shatter that yoke. It's going to be God himself. The Lord of of armies, the Lord Almighty. He is going to do this. So then the question remains, okay, well, who is this person that is going to do this? Who is going to shatter that yoke? Who is going to bring God's people out of darkness? Well, that brings me to my third main point this morning. The yoke is broken by Jesus. The yoke is broken by Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that this prophecy here in Isaiah 9, which is so popular at Christmas time, this prophecy that is given is about Jesus Christ. And we read that in that passage that we looked at in Matthew chapter 4. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. Flip with me there, page 958 of the Church Bibles, page 958. Chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12, we read, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is that same land of Naphtali and Zebulun. He returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then that same passage that we've been looking at is quoted there in Matthew's Gospel. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus has gone into that land. And what does that mean? A light has dawned on that land. Jesus Christ is the light that has come. He is that warrior that is going to break the yoke of darkness that is upon God's people. And it's not just Matthew 4 that tells us that this son is Jesus Christ. The rest of the New Testament tells us that he fits the description that is given in Isaiah 9. What does Isaiah 9 say about the son? That he will be a son. He will be fully human. He'll be one who is born. Like the rest of us were born. He will be fully human. And we see that in the description that is given of his birth in Luke chapter 2. Flip with me there to Luke chapter 2 which is found on page 1014, a few pages over from Matthew's Gospel. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, page 1014, 1014. Verse 1 we read, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This description here in chapter 2 of Jesus' birth, it's actually fairly unremarkable. It doesn't really seem to indicate that this person who is being born is of any great significance in the world. In fact, it looks like he's of minor significance in the world in the fact that he was born in an area that was designated for feeding of animals. And he was put in cloths in a manger. This is very unremarkable once again demonstrating that Jesus was fully human. It wasn't as though he dropped out of the sky into this world as a human being. No, he was born like the rest of us. He was a fully human person here on earth. Just as in Isaiah 9, it tells us that a son would be born. If Jesus had been plucked out of the sky, then he wouldn't be a fulfillment of Isaiah 9. He would not have been born. But instead we see here in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus did go through that normal human process of being born into this world. 
But we also see in the Gospels that Jesus fulfills the words of Isaiah 9 in being God himself as well. He is fully human, but he is also fully God. Jesus makes this remarkable claim in John chapter 10, verse 30, that he and the Father are one. He says, I and the Father are one. Father representing God the Father in heaven. He says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews pick up stones to stone him. And he says, why are you stoning me? Why are you going to stone me? And, he say, and they say, because you are claiming to be God. And then by the way that Jesus behaves and the, way, the things that he does demonstrates his divinity, his power over creation, his power to heal people, his power to cast out demons, as we read in that other passage from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 4. All these things point to the fact that Jesus is indeed that mighty God that is told to us in Isaiah chapter 9. He is the mighty God. He is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And so Jesus fits the description that is given in Isaiah 9. He is human. He is God himself. But the question remains, has Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that is given about what this mighty God would do? What was that? That he would shatter the yoke of darkness upon these people. That he would shatter that yoke. Does he do that? Well, he didn't shatter the yoke in the sense that he got a political victory there in those lands while he was on earth. But he did shatter a yoke. The Apostle Paul talks about Jesus shattering the yoke of slavery in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There is a yoke of slavery upon us, a slavery to sin. And that yoke, the Apostle Paul says, has been shattered and he says it in Romans 8, chapter 1 as well, uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have a law of sin and death on us. And Jesus shatters that yoke as the fully human one and the one who is fully divine, he shatters it. But you may be saying, is the law of sin really slavery? Is it really meaning that I'm in gloom? Is it really that things are sad when I am in slavery to sin? Well, the answer is yes. Sin does make us unhappy. When we do the wrong thing, our conscience is often pricked and we feel ashamed and we feel guilty. And that's not a nice feeling. It's a feeling of gloom, of despair, of a humbling experience, a distressing experience to feel that you have done the wrong thing. And of course, the consequences of sin bring gloom as well. The consequences of sin, of walking in the darkness of sin, is far worse than breaking a little toe in the night when you're walking down some stairs that are unfamiliar. The consequences of sin is the shadow of death coming upon us. We will actually die for our sins and be punished, the Bible tells us, for eternity. And we cannot pay that sin back for all of eternity. We continue to suffer. It's like when you've done something wrong in this world 
and then you're told that you now owe something like $10 million, and yet you only get paid maybe $5 an hour. How are you ever going to be able to pay all that off? I actually did the math on that. If I was, had to pay off a $10 million debt and only made $5 an hour, if I worked a 35-hour week, I'd have to work for 1,098 years to pay all that off. And, of course, I don't have 1,098 years in my life, I don't think. It's an impossible debt to pay back. And that is the consequences of sin. And that's not a nice feeling. You may have a debt already, and it's not all that nice. You might have a home and you've got this great mortgage, and you've got that weighing on you that you've got to pay it back. And if you, if you get hurt at work, how will you be able to then, if you can't work anymore, pay that back? And that is the yoke that is upon us. This yoke of slavery to sin, that we have the guilt of sin upon us and we have consequences of sin coming toward us. But in Christ, the Bible tells us that the yoke of sin is removed. We can get to a stage where we no longer have the gloom of a guilty conscience. The condemnation for our sin is removed and no longer have the consequences of sin applied to us as well. We no longer have to worry about paying off our debt. We no longer have to worry about living in the shadow of death because we have been set free from sin and will be given eternal life after we die instead of eternal death, a second death in hell itself. But the question then remains, if Christ is the one who shatters the yoke of sin upon us, shatters that yoke of darkness, how did he do it? Well, he did it at the cross. At Christmas, we remember Jesus coming into this world, and it's a marvellous occasion, but it's marvellous because of what Christ did later on in his life, what we remember at Easter, that Jesus Christ went to the cross and bore the punishment that we deserve. He took our sin upon his shoulders and was punished on our behalf. He became gloomy on the cross for us. He became humbled upon the cross for us. He became distressed on the cross for us. He lived in the shadow of death on the cross for us. He walked in darkness there on the cross for us. And that's what another part of Isaiah describes Jesus doing. One of my favourite passages in the whole of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 53, where it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus took up our iniquity on him. He bore our pain and suffering so that we could be set free from sin. But how can you have Jesus die on your behalf? How can you know that it was Jesus that was there at the cross dying for you, shattering that yoke, shattering that rod, that bar across your shoulders of sin? Well, the passage in Isaiah chapter 9 tells us that Jesus is given to God's people. It says there in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Who is the us there in Isaiah chapter 9? Well, of course, it's the Israelites. Does that mean that if you're not a Jew, Jesus Christ has not shattered the yoke of slavery to sin and death for you? Well, the New Testament reminds us that 
We can be part of God's people if we'll simply trust in him. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26 says, In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Through faith. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then you are part of God's family. You are children of God. And that means Jesus has shattered that yoke that is upon you, that you no longer need to walk in darkness. You no longer need to walk in the shadow of death. You no longer need to feel guilt and pain about your sin because Jesus has removed that yoke from you if you come to him and trust that he died on your behalf. So this Christmas, as we walk towards Christmas, do you feel like you're living in gloom? that you're living in distress, that you're living in darkness? Do you recognise your sinfulness, the way you've rebelled against your creator in so many ways? Has your conscience been pricked today, even as I've been speaking? That doesn't have to be the case. You can have that bar, that yoke upon your shoulders shattered. You can have that burden lifted if you will come to Christ and turn from your sins and trust in him. If you will do what Jesus commands people to do in Matthew 4, after that prophecy is given in Matthew 4, it then says he started to repent, uh, preach that you should repent for the kingdom of God is near. If you turn from your sins today, you can be one of those people who rejoices as one rejoicing at the harvest, as one rejoicing when the plunder has been recovered. There's this marvellous truth that is contained in the scriptures for us. He really likes the microphone. There's this marvellous truth that is contained in the scriptures for us, that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you have a marvellous harvest. What is that harvest? You have all the gifts that God gives us in the next life. You have many gifts here in this world. He does bless his children immensely, but he can take those gifts away in this world. But what is promised to us is a future reward a future reward where we have heaven with all its blessings poured out upon us for eternity. And that is far better than any harvest you can have in this world. If you're a farmer, you may understand that. Any harvest, let's think payday or maybe a Christmas bonus, any joy that comes from that experience is surpassed greatly by the reward that we have as that yoke is lifted from us and we, instead of looking forward to eternal punishment, we're looking forward to eternal life with God. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you, have that yoke lifted today. And if you are a Christian, praise God that that yoke is shattered, that bar is removed, that rod of the oppression of sin is taken from you because mighty God has done it. He has shattered that bar for you. Let's come before our God in prayer. Let us speak to him. Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you honour and glory for what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you that you have taken us from living in the shadow of death to living in the shadow of Christ. And his light has been poured out upon us so that we have eternal life. Lord, we pray for anyone in this room who is not trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. We pray that they may long for that yoke to be shattered. May they turn from their sins and trust in him today so that they can have freedom and no longer be in slavery to sin and death.
Lord, we pray that you would do this work in their hearts even now. And we pray for us who do believe. We pray that we may never forget this truth, that Christ has shattered that yoke for us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would give you glory day by day for what you've done for us through Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.